Good morning. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here. Uh, a dear sister in the front said, welcome back. Uh, it's my first time. <laughs> I guess I have one of those faces. Uh, Mark took us out fishing yesterday, and it's always great to be out on the water. Uh, we didn't catch anything we could keep. Yes. But he did catch us food at the market afterwards with his card. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's the Word of God. Uh, the Word of God comes to us from Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 to 46. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 to 46. When the Son of God comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then you will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then you will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's the word of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are your creation, created for your purposes. Our lives are a gift from you to be spent for you. Father, you have called us, especially now as your redeemed people, having received the love of Christ, to go forth and love our neighbors, to be merciful in our relationships, but, Father, we confess that we have we have not done what pleases you. Father, we pray that you would forgive us. But, Father, we pray for more than this. We pray that you would challenge us with that hope, that resurrection hope that we have in Christ. To move forward and to love and serve our neighbors mercifully. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen. We began this week with devastating news. 58 American lives taken senselessly. Nearly 500 more injured. They had gathered in leisure at a music festival in Las Vegas. And after, after shooting so many, the gunman, Stephen Paddock, took his own life, presumably to escape trial and judgment for his atrocious crime. We know that he had another arsenal prepared, explosives prepared, probably to do more. So I presume he thought he would escape. But when that became clear that he wouldn't, he took his life again to escape the judgment that would await him. This passage reminds us that he will not sidestep the judgment of God who will judge us for things we do. To moments like these that our hearts go out to the thousands who have been robbed of peace and, and love, people they love. And to moments like this that our cries go out to God, asking God for justice, for judgment, for him to deal with sins that bring devastation to our lives, to our neighbors' lives. But it's also in moments like these that we are tempted to doubt whether God is present with us, whether he has abandoned us. Does he care? Because these crimes seem to increase in their ferocity. It's the worst shooting by an individual in all of our nation's history. God, are you there? Are you going to do something with regards to these sins? Are you going to address them? We answer these doubts with truth, gospel truth. God has not abandoned us, for he sent his only begotten son under the banner, the banner truth, God with us the Son of God, enfleshed. He didn't abandon us, cast us away. He drew near in the most intimate way possible. He cared for the broken. He went to the lost. He carried the cross so that he would bring us near not to be distant from us. As for the doubts of whether God will do anything to address sins, Christ carried the cross in our place, standing in judgment in our place, with our sins on his shoulder. He satisfied the wrath of God as our atoning sacrifice. We cannot... Look at Calvary in faith and deny in the same breath and moment that our God is a God of justice. 
He's a God who acts. Christ took our judgment at Calvary. It was the first episode of one last day's moment in redemptive history. Here we have the second episode, when Christ returns. When Christ returns, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will distinguish each person, one from another, into two categories, sheep and goats. The sheep will inherit the kingdom that is prepared for them. And the goats, eternal punishment. And the explicit reason for the difference between these two groups is rather shocking. It's mercy. It's whether their lives were merciful to their neighbors. Those who, those who are sheep, those who have faith in Christ, those who belong to the kingdom who will eventually inherit the kingdom, show mercy to their neighbors. Of course, the central reason for the difference is faith. Jesus makes that very clear in Matthew 8, verse 10 to 12, when he's speaking to the centurion. Many will come from the east, from, from the east and from the west and recline at table in the kingdom. And the reason for it? Faith. Not works. Not something earned, but something inherited through faith. But faith, such a saving faith, as James would remind us, is a faith that works. It's not a naked faith. It's a faith that is adorned and clothed with good works. It produces good works. Mercy towards our neighbors. Those who are righteous by faith, a faith in a merciful God, must be and will be merciful. We just read this in Luke. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, for your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for, the, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. That is to say that if we have become children of God, who is merciful. It is expected of us to be adorned with that character that is merciful. There are two common reasons why Christians neglect the Lord's call to mercy. And that is a disconnected faith and a discouraged faith. A disconnected faith has yet to bring faith to bear on life or a faithful life to bear on neighbors' lives. A discouraged faith knows all of that, but it's always stumbling over doubt. Doubt that dries you up, dries you up of your strength. It's not just tiredness, it's, it's discouraged doubt. It's these two things that I want to unpack for you some more today. A discouraged faith doesn't always look like, you know, your Sunday Christian faith. It can look rather fervent. I mean, uh, disconnected faith, sorry. It can look rather fervent. You can come to church on Sunday, hours before the service, 
meditate, read, study the word intently, and then return to your homes and see no impact on Monday. A disconnected faith can, can be really, really committed to the study of the word, but it doesn't change the lens of your heart to impact your lives. Christian faith is something we ought to study, but it's also something we study life through. We examine life through this faith. It's a worldview. Think about how the Bible describes our conversion experience. One of them is we were blind in unbelief, and now we see. Can you imagine if you were blind and you were given the gift of sight, you wouldn't add sightseeing one hour of one day of the week. It's not something you add to your already busy schedule. There's a shift. Everything in your life changes because now you see. It's a radical change. A gift through which everything else changes. We were dead. Now we are alive in Christ. These are the ways that the Bible describes our conversion, our faith. And so, of course, that faith should bear upon our lives. One of the more profound challenges this passage gave to me years ago, I admit I'm naturally an introvert. I like to have my private space. I like to have... Uh, a room that I can go into and everything is well-ordered and there's no one asking me for something that is unforeseen or unexpected. I can, I can schedule my day. I know where everything is. My baby didn't move it. I love that. This looks messy. This looks messy. There's a temptation I have to say, well, let's prune the gospel to fit my life. When the Lord is calling us to prune our lives to manifest the gospel. The goats. Jesus makes no mention of them robbing or lying any acts of violence. That's what struck me years ago as I read this. They could have, they could have been hard-working Americans that work Monday through Saturday, care for their families, pay their taxes, say hello, good morning to their neighbors. It's because they didn't give food to the hungry. They didn't give drink to the thirsty. They didn't visit the sick or even those who were incarcerated. They didn't show mercy. And this is what our Lord what our Lord says. There's a disconnect in their lives their personal life, to their neighbor's life. A discouraged faith knows good works are necessary. 
It knows that faith is supposed to change the choices we make, the values we have, the goals and aspirations we carry deep within our chest. What it struggles with is doubt. The hands of a discouraged faith hang limp, not from tiredness, not from the daily toil, week after week, month after month, year after year. It comes with the doubt of not knowing whether what we put into this life, into our neighbor's life, pouring ourselves out for that person's need, is going to produce any change. We're defeated. We feel defeated, even before we begin. That's what discouraged faith looks like. And we, we experience that in a variety of areas in our lives. It begins personally in our hearts. I mean, all of us have those sins that we're still wrestling with. We come before God and we say, God, I'm, I'm done with myself. Aren't you done with me? I thought I beat that years ago. What's this new episode? I feel like I'm tumbling through life, God. Helpless, aimless. I feel like an utter failure. How am I supposed to be your ambassador elsewhere? How am I supposed to be uh, your, 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 your instrument in other people's lives when I can't even seem to get up on my own? I'm still struggling with doubt or even sins in this area. Add to that the, the, the frustration we sometimes feel with just the body of Christ, the church. It's not growing fast enough. It's not going in the direction I want it to or all this unnecessary squabbling or bickering over silly little things. And then you have our neighbors, our nation. We always think our nation is so divided and then next year we we're surprised to see it actually it can be worse. Our nation feels divided right now. Our nation is hurting right now. We can spend evenings on end measuring the amount of loss, unnecessary loss, on top of natural loss and not know what to do with all of it. When so many layers of discouragement weigh down on our hearts, we are tempted to do, to do two things which in effect are the same. One is to push people away, push the needy away because the demands are too great and too numerous. The other is to do what the disciples would do, right? Lord, who is my neighbor? Let's draw that line, that geographic line. What, what's my zip code, Lord? How, how do we mitigate 
the amount of need that is out there that I feel like you're calling me to care about, care for. And we do that because we ourselves are, we feel like we're teetering on the edge of a cliff most of, like, most of the time. Balancing 50, 60, 70 hour work weeks, always feeling like we haven't given enough time to our family, always feeling like, like we've, we, we haven't done our civic duty in the community. We haven't gone to all of the community council meetings. We haven't gone to the, to the school meetings for parents. We haven't done enough of this and enough of that. We haven't given it enough to this organization or enough to this organization. We always feel like we're on the edge. Every time my, my girl cries, I feel like I've failed as a father. I'm the primary caregiver. <laughs> this is the longest I've been away from her, so I'll be racing home after this. I apologize if I don't have a chance to talk to all of you. There are days when I'm struggling to feed her because <laughs> she just doesn't want to eat. And when she doesn't take that next, that one extra spoonful, I feel like an utter failure. I will make as many goofy sounds and faces as I can to feed her and nothing will work. And I'm, I have to text my wife, she didn't eat. You know that feeling? Most of us carry that feeling every single day to perform. And then someone comes along and says, can you do this for me? And all you see in the field is just another burden just dropping on your shoulder, pressing you into the ground to feel all the more helpless and distraught. It's almost like they're pressing you to experience your weakness, experience your shortcomings, and you're saying, no! No, I've got enough on my plate as it is. Stop asking me for more. I've got my family, I've got my life, I've got all of these things to do. Your needs are your needs, my needs are my needs. We just need to take care of ourselves. Because I'm trying and I'm failing. So let's draw a line right here. Can you give me some space? That's what discouragement does. Discouragement keeps us from embracing our weaknesses to just say, hey, you know what? I am. I am weak. I've never had the strength to do any of these things on my own. Lord, will you use these weaknesses? Lord, will you use these weaknesses? Will you do this work as I trust you to? Finding encouragement in the Lord in that. In the very next chapter, which begins after verse 46, chapter 20, 26, the first two verses, Jesus reminds his disciples that in two days the Passover is coming and he will be delivered up to be crucified. They are making their way to Jerusalem and three times already Jesus has told them what awaits them in Jerusalem. That he will be taken from them, crucified. 
If that's not discouragement, I don't know what is. Right? There's, there's a certain measurement in our minds. We, we are willing to commit a certain amount of resources to something or someone if we think that they will make our lives better to whatever degree. If this person is going to revolutionize the way I do my job, I'm willing to take a week off of my job to go listen to this person to figure out how. These disciples left house, family, vocation to follow Jesus for three years. Begs the question, what did they think Jesus was going to do in their lives? Only to find out here, he's going to be taken away and crucified. In two days' time, the disciples won't even be there because they were too afraid. But Christ will be on Calvary. And to lesser interpretive eyes, it would look like his defeat. My Savior has been defeated. And there he hangs at Calvary. Wouldn't that be discouraging? But of course, as I said already, Jesus told them three times that he would be crucified and raised. That death would not be his defeat, but rather through his death and resurrection, he would secure a higher, more permanent hope than we could ever ask for or imagine. Not to save us from our sin and bring us back to the garden, but to bring us into the kingdom itself. What Adam failed to attain by his disobedience, that is what Christ gives to us to inherit by faith. So that he, having been raised by the power of God, Ephesians 1, will see to it that we who are united to him by faith will be raised by that same power, Ephesians 2. That he will be the anchor, the immovable anchor, our living hope. And the cords of his love, grace, and power shall never break. And we too will inherit that life. Even as we've begin, begun to experience it in our hearts. He will do it. It's so important that we see the resurrection glory of Christ to not be discouraged. See here, again he reminds his disciples. He begins with the Son of Man coming in his glory, the Son of Man sitting on his glorious throne, the Son of Man having all of this authority to remind his disciples that even though in two days' time he will go to the cross, that will not be the end. That is simply the conduit to which he secures that throne. Secures our life. Amen. The Son of Man will come in his glory. He will be the first fruits of the resurrection harvest. Our living hope. Sin does not win. The devil does not win. It doesn't take much to, co- to convince us that the devil is real, as, as, as it speaks of 
as Jesus speaks of here. What we need is to see that Christ and His resurrection is real. To know the power of His resurrection and the hope it gives to our lives. That's what we need. What strikes me is how both both groups ask the same question of the Lord. I don't know if you guys got that. When did we see you, Lord? As if to say, Lord, if we had seen you and recognized you, we would have acted differently, although the sheep acted just fine. Lord, if we had recognized you and seen you, we would have acted differently. I don't think it's a mistake or, or, or an a unnecessary detail that Jesus begins with this glorious vision of his return in verse 31 and 32. Lord, when did we see you? Lord, what do we see in you? Because he could have simply went to, I'm coming back, and I'm going to separate people in judgment. He didn't have to include this glory vision. But I'm led to believe because both groups are asking, Lord, when did we see you so that we would have acted this way? There is a pressing question we must ask. What do you see in the Lord that would prompt you to live mercifully or not mercifully towards your neighbors? What do you see? Do you see your risen Lord seated in glory, having conquered sin and death? Or do you see someone who was just simply a passing stranger who had done good things and is now gone? At best, a role model, but not a present redeemer. What do you see? I'll tell you some things that we see in this passage. First, we see he calls us his brothers. Verse 40. My brothers. That is, that's about the richest part of this passage right there. That the Lord in glory calls you and me, brothers and sisters. So much so that what is done to us he considers done to him. For example, what Paul did to the church before his conversion. He didn't say to, he didn't say to at the time, Saul, why are you hurting my church? He said, why are you persecuting me? How deeply and personally he cares for us that we could trust him with our sorrows and our struggles. But the meaning of brother is, is much deeper. It's not just that he is present and personally involved in a relationship with us. He, he means to say that you and I will inherit together with him the kingdom. That you are not the rejected sinner, stranger outside. Your home is with him. In the kingdom. It's a home you inherit. And like any inheritance, it is earned by someone else, given to you. Our home is in heaven. With the Lord. It's in the kingdom. With the Lord. And that is to say that our almighty, glorious king 
who has secured this kingdom by his death and resurrection, will not fail to bring us into it. The glorious king who died for you will not fail to give to you what he paid for. Don't we expect that of the powerful? To get what they want? Especially if they paid for it? Especially if they paid their life for it? He sits on his glorious throne and he says to you, you are my brother, my sister, who will inherit the kingdom. That is for us to not doubt. That though you may be stumbling through the dark in in terms of your battles with personal sin, it's been paid for by the blood of Christ. That your life is found with Christ who is seated in heaven. That you and I are already by that mystical spiritual union with Christ seated with him in heaven. Amazing. And he will not fail to complete the work he began. He will not fail to complete the work he began. Brothers, sisters. You will inherit that kingdom with him. As far as the church, he so affectionately reminds us that we are his sheep and he is the good shepherd. He is the the shepherd that David points forward to in Psalm 23, who doesn't simply traverse a valley of shadow, but death itself. To do what? To bring us to the dwelling place of God. The church will always have trials outside of it and inside of it. But immovable, our hope is in Christ. Immovable is the hope of Christ's bride, the church, as it goes forth to proclaim the gospel. Christ will not fail to tend and feed and guide his flock. And so we don't lose heart continue to pour ourselves out for our church in any way we can. And then there's our neighbors. It's a verse we almost easily, maybe too easily, read right past in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. The resurrection hope of Christ, Paul says, means we don't lose heart that our labors are not in vain. All of the work we we put into people's lives, pouring ourselves out as a drink offering, to use the language of Paul, for others, is not in vain. It's not lost to the soil. Seeds sprout. It gives life. So we pour ourselves out for others to see them sprout and to grow. Trusting that the Lord will do the work. That he is doing the work. How can we implement this resurrection hope in our lives? I want to to challenge you in two ways. One being a little bit more 
obvious than the other. First is prayer. Prayer is that thing we talk about all the time and hardly ever seem to do as, as earnestly and faithfully as we ought to. But it's as the Lord says, unless the Lord builds it, the builders build in vain. That is to say that unless the Lord, unless we trust the Lord in prayer for that work, we do it in vain. We come to the Lord in our weakness and say, Lord, use what little we have to do the work. And that's how he receives his glory. We pray for the Lord to do work that we ourselves are not capable of doing. Because in the end, in the end, then we can say, it really was all you. I prayed a lot before getting up here. Because in the end, your heart, my heart, only the Lord can move them. And so in weakness, we commit our lives to the Lord and we ask Him to do the work. There comes a time when we stop measuring the boundaries of our strengths. And we just kneel. Say, Lord, okay, I don't have everything. Manifest your glory in my weaknesses, my shortcomings. Do the work, Lord. Help me to do what I must do despite my limitations. The other important and necessary step we take to apply this faith is to seek out community. And I say this for two reasons. One, because life is incredibly complex. I don't need to tell you that. How many of us have sat through a Bible study or even a sermon per se? And you're told what to do in any given situation. And only your mind is racing to qualify your situation and say, well, my situation doesn't fit that. Well, that's all fine if the world was black and white, but mine's really gray right now. You're talking about helping this person. I've got all these other needs. It's incredibly complex and confusing almost all the time. Am I right? It doesn't help when people just throw out or maybe stick down your throat something for you to do. It's not that easy. So how do we determine in this moment how to live mercifully with our neighbors? Well, we determine that in community. That's what I've learned. That the Lord has given us a church, brothers and sisters, who not just know us by name, but walk with us day in and day out, know our struggles, and, and pray with us to determine, to seek out the Lord's will and being merciful in that particular relationship you have and having a hard time with. I'm having a hard time with my husband or my wife or my, my parents or my children. I don't know what it looks like to mercifully love and serve my children right now. You have the church for that. You have a church who can help you figure that out. Brothers and sisters to help you in prayer figure that out. 
And the other reason why that's important is because the complexity of the situation is made all the more confusing by the desires in our hearts that get in the way. That's true of all of us. How many of us see something apparent in the <laughs> and it can be rather black and white, what we're supposed to do? But inside you hear that voice, but I don't want to. You know, you just got ready for that fishing expedition to go out and spend a weekend on the water and then someone calls you and says, I need help. And you know it from the voice. You know it, you hear it in the tone. This is not a one-hour visit. Now you've got to cancel your plans. And you hear it. But I don't want to. I haven't had a vacation in six months. I'm tired. What's wrong with me having a vacation? Where's everyone else? We need people that know us, who look right through the fog and go, wait, you're clouding the situation here. You're called to carry your cross and die with Christ. Your brother, your sister, your friend needs you. We need that community that knows us so intimately that when we confuse the situation with our hidden desires, those people who know us can pull that out and say, wait, let's dispense with this, let's dispense with that, now what's in front of you? We need that. Because we're really good with cleaning our lives by throwing all of the refuse in the closet. We present ourselves picture perfect. We need that friend who's a little bit too intrusive, who doesn't know boundaries, <laughs> who comes into our living room and goes, what's that smell? And you're like, oh, it's nothing. And they just proceed to open all the doors. No, it's nothing. Leave it alone. Stop it. And then comes the closet door, swinging wide open, and then... <sighs> Oh, that's what it is. A lot of times, the reason why we fail to live mercifully is because we don't have that community to challenge us to do so, to remind us in the gospel of our hope to do so. I'm really excited for this church. Mark is telling me all about uh, the discipleship community that you guys are pursuing here. And it's rich. I, I'm praying for the Lord to do that here. Already you guys are clearly thriving. And I know that this would be that, that next step. And really, really excited for you. I believe wholeheartedly that it's, it's so important for us to have a community to apply the resurrection hope to our lives. You know, Paul, throughout his, throughout his writings, he yearns to know the depth and breadth of God's love and the hope that we have in the resurrection. And that's Paul saying that. We never arrive at having this full, broad, and deep understanding of the resurrection hope applying to our lives. We keep striving to know it, to see it. And what better than to do it with a community of people doing the same. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, our hearts grieve even now for those who are experiencing loss. 
loss not only from the major uh, events in the news, but loss that can be eclipsed by all the news coverage on other things. Lord, there is so much sorrow that we are carrying in our hearts. Father, we pray that you would take it as we commit it to you, that you are God of comfort, would be present and near to us, that you would visit and sit with us when we need you. And the Lord, when we are ready, by your grace, ready. Lord, that you would move us forward to now be mercifully present in the lives of others who are experiencing sorrow and need. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would not be discouraged in our efforts to be merciful. But Lord, we pray that our faith in the risen Christ, the crucified and risen Christ, that this faith in Christ, the anchor and living hope of our lives, would move us as a community diligently, faithfully to serve you, Lord. Please, Lord, use our weaknesses to manifest your glory, your manifold glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.